We'll come to the time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Ephesians? Book of Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It's on page 827 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, the big black numbers are the chapter numbers. And when you found that, would you stand together with me? And I'll read this passage for us. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. But, one of the most wonderful words in the Bible, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly, with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Verse 11, therefore, remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that is, all who do not have Jewish Jewish ethnicity, all who are Gentiles, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time, that is formerly, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on this time together in his word. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask for you to meet with us here. Would you speak powerfully to our hearts through this word? Lord, I believe that each person here, you've drawn here with a purpose. You tell us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us this morning. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, here we are in a new year, 2018, and the flip of the calendar from one year to the next is often an occasion for remembering, for reflection. But even the bravest souls among us are are very likely to want to often just hit the fast-forward button, hit the skip-forward button. Anytime in that remembering, we come to those sections of uh, bitter losses, humiliating failures, we're just going to be like, nope, let's get past that, thank you. 
I think it's safe to say that while remembering is a practice we might all participate in, either on our own or in the company of others, the majority of us, well, we keep, we keep pretty close to the shoreline when we remember. We don't like to head too deeply into those waters. Now, personally speaking, I mean, I could, I could talk all day, you know, sharing memories with someone about trips to Disneyland, uh, sharing, swapping horror stories about uh, the dentist trips, whatever it is, and yet... I'm going to be much more reserved, probably much more apprehensive when it comes to sharing some more deeper things within me, deeper losses, humiliating failures of my past. That's just, well, that's not a destination any of us really likes to travel to all that much, right? In his book, A Room Called Remember, Frederick Buechner says it this way, We cling to the present out of weariness of the past. We cling to the surface out of fear of what lies beneath the surface. And why not, after all? We get tired. We get confused. We need such escape as we can find. But there is a deeper need yet, I think. And that is the need, not all the time, surely, but from time to time, to enter that still room within us all where the past lives on as part of the present where the dead are alive again, where we are most alive ourselves to the long journeys of our lives with all their twistings and turnings and to where our journeys have brought us. The name of the room is Remember. The room where with patience, with charity, with quietness of heart, we remember consciously to remember the lives we have lived. Now, yes, there's no question. Some of us, are probably a little too comfortable uh, entering into those uh, deep, locked-away places. We spend entirely too much time there, you know, nursing and caressing all the past hurts and wounds of our lives in order to just justify our vindictiveness. But for the majority who rarely, if ever, swim that deeply beneath the surface, we can quite often find, if we're willing to travel there, perhaps with uh, the help of a trusted friend or a counselor, that some of the most devastating losses, humiliating failures of our past, as difficult as they were to go through at the time, are also some of the most powerfully shaping events of who we've become today. That they make us who we are today. And then, well beyond that, well beyond just going there ourselves, I think we all agree that it takes a very particular type of friend, a very specific close friend, really, to allow somebody to go and draw deeply themselves from our ocean of memories. To go in there and, and dredge something up, something hurtful or painful, and bring it out and say, let's talk about this without endangering the friendship. Only very closest of friends could do something like that. Which I think shows us, in light of our passage today, that the Bible, God's Word, is just that kind of friend to us even before we know that it is. And I say that because of the memory God's Word calls us here to remember. A memory that, if you're a Christian here today, most of us don't like to think about. We want to keep way off down in the deep depths of that ocean of memories. We just as soon forget. You see it in verse 12 here of our passage. Look there with me. Paul says, Remember. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God. 
Ouch. To ask us to remember that. That's hard. To, to remember our life, remember who we were before Jesus saved us, what John Newton called our unawakened years. That can feel about as comfortable as having the shower curtain ripped off the bathtub while you still have shampoo in your eyes. And just, you're standing there, you can't hide yourself, you're just exposed, there's nothing to do but just stand there. It's, it's incredibly uncomfortable. And yet I believe this type of remembering is a truly essential practice, powerfully shaping exercise of remembering for the believer in Jesus, with at least two key benefits, which is also how we're going to break down our passage as we look at it this morning. I want to show you this morning how remembering, first of all, leads us to gratitude. Secondly, remembering leads us to humility. Remembering leads us to gratitude. Remembering leads us to humility. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again there to Ephesians chapter 2? Follow along with me as God's Word now leads us through the essential practice of continually remembering our lives before we knew Jesus. So we're going to look first of all at how remembering leads us to gratitude. Remembering leads us to gratitude, which shouldn't be a difficult concept for us to get to at all if we think, for instance, about the example I used just last week, if you were here with us, of Remembrance Day, Veterans Day that we celebrate every November 11th. Since 1919, following the tradition inaugurated by King George V, we set aside a day every year to remember with gratitude the men and women who gave their lives in military service to secure the freedoms that we enjoy in our country today. Now, this is probably one of the easiest forms of remembering with gratitude, well, because while the gift came at an incredibly high cost, we also know that we're not personally responsible for this suffering. We're just the benefactors of it. An example that probably hits a little bit closer to home for some of us in here is that moment of sudden, unexpected awareness when you have kids of your own. When you have that aha moment and you have this mixture of feelings simultaneously horrified at the thought of, good grief, did my parents actually have to go through that with me? While at the same time, grateful, grateful that they would endure such undeserved suffering to raise us. That type of remembering, a little bit harder for us, primarily because, well, now there's responsibility. There's, there's personal culpability on our part. But the kind of remembering that the Bible is calling us to do here in our passage this morning is probably one of the hardest forms of all to practice. Why? Well, because along with personal responsibility, culpability, we, we, we are at fault. What we're being called to remember here is not simply cringeworthy. It's also deeply personal, humiliating exposure of you and I at our very worst. That's what we're being called to remember, the kind of stuff that you want to keep locked deep down in the ocean of memories, the kind of stuff you wouldn't share in polite company in which you'd shush your child if they brought up at a Thanksgiving dinner, like your five-year-old child asking your uncle loudly at Thanksgiving dinner, hey, how come you went to prison? Did you kill somebody? You know, you there's, there's, there's no easy way out of that situation. These are the things we don't, we don't go to those places. The details 
that we're supposed to remember. The Apostle Paul gives us in verse 12 there. Look there again. They're bad enough to start out with. Remember, he says there, we are separated from Christ, excluded. Some of your translations will say alienated from citizenship with God's people, without hope and without God. I mean, already, if this wasn't the Bible, we'd almost hear this in a, in a taunting way, like somebody being like, ha-ha, remember when you used to be an outcast? It's hurtful to even ask us to go to this place. But earlier on in this chapter, it's even worse. Verse 3 is even more devastating. Look up there with me. Here, what Paul calls us to remember is when we were freely, unashamedly, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. He says, remember that. Remember that time in your life. Now, I know I just finished saying this is one of the hardest forms of all of remembering. But honestly, when you hear those words, you think about that time in your life with with just unrestrained freedom. You were gratifying the desires of your sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Is, Is there not even a single memory that just sneaks out from those deep locked away places and swims up to the surface before you can stop it? I'm not saying it's going to be the same thing for everyone or even the same amount of things for everyone. And listen, relax. I'm not going to hand around a roving mic here and ask you to share what those things might be. But for reasons that we're going to get to in a minute, the Bible just told us directly, as difficult and embarrassing as it might feel, to remember that time in our lives before we knew Jesus. In fact, that that word, remember, in the Greek here in this context is, is an imperative verb. God is commanding us to remember. And whether being asked to remember who you were before you knew Jesus uh, makes you feel overwhelmed, when you just think of all the shameful memories that come to your mind when you do that, or if it makes you feel superior because nothing all that bad comes to mind when you do that. Either way, whichever one it is, the beginning of verse 3, look again, there says, sorry, each one of you, every single one of us, We're in that very same camp of without hope and without God. We're all in the same boat together. See, Paul says there, all of us, all of us also used to live among them. Not some of us, not those with weak wills or character or morals, all of us. Which means, and I get asked this question fairly frequently, no. No, there is not this group over here of really, really bad people, all the Hitlers and Stalins of the world. These are the really bad people who are truly objects of God's wrath. And there's everybody else over here. Everyone else in the world is over here. You know, mostly nice people, good people. And the jury's still out on them. We just don't know. We're going to have to wait till Judgment Day to see what God decides. That, that's not the division the Bible makes. No. What we have is one type of people There's only people who uh, defiantly are living in opposition to God's sovereign rule and people who are also living in opposition to God's sovereign rule. They're just doing it more nicely. It's the same thing. But if you think about it, whether you shoot the bank teller as you rob the bank or whether you say please and thank you to the teller as you rob the bank, aren't you still guilty of breaking the law, deserving of justice? How you break the law is not the point. Breaking the law is the point. And for every moment, either defiantly or respectfully, that you or I claimed for ourselves what is actually God's because He's the maker of it, 
For every moment where we sought to place ourselves on the throne that is rightfully his as the king of all, gratifying the cravings of our own sinful desire, all of us together stood guilty and condemned before God without hope and without God in the world. And that is what we're being called to remember. Now, why in the world would the Bible ask us to remember something like that? In fact, one of the more common objections from a secular view of Christianity is that this type of remembering is just the thing that's wrong with religion. It's exactly the problem with it. It's just all about beating people down, guilting them into submitting to the rules of the church. My reply to that would simply be, while yes, feelings of guilt could certainly come as a result of this type of remembering, the point of what the Bible is calling us to do here is not at all to produce guilt in you, but an ever-increasing gratitude. Amen. It's not to produce guilt. It's to produce gratitude. We know that, first of all, because if you read carefully here in this passage, we see how regularly Paul uses the past tense throughout his calling to this difficult practice of remembering. See there, verse 1, you, you were dead in your sins. Verse 2, in which those things in which you used to live. Verse 3, all of us lived among them. We were by nature objects of God's wrath. Verse 11, formerly, all these past tense use of language. So it's not at all some browbeating, Paul like calling everyone to uh, get our act together, start living lives more worthy of God's love. No, it's a call to look back and remember the danger in which we were walking, but now from a place and a position of being safely held in God's love. It's almost like standing safely on the shore of whitewater rapids and being shown all the places of danger that you needed to be brought through in order to get to the other side. Looking back doesn't produce guilt for your rescue. It produces more and more gratitude. We also know this practice of remembering is meant to produce gratitude and not guilt. When we see in the context of this hard stuff it's asking us to remember, all of our rebellion and our hopelessness, how laced this passage is with God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace to us. Look at verse 4 and 5 again with me. Paul says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, mercy, mercy, that, that simply means not getting what we deserve to be given. Which, when we remember who we were before Jesus saved us, is clearly his justice. That's what we deserve to get. Instead, we got his mercy. Grace simply means being given what we don't deserve to be given. Which, again, remembering who we were before we knew Jesus is his love. We were not deserving of his love. And the love of God we see demonstrated there in verse 13. By bringing us who were far away from God near through the death of Jesus Christ. And bringing us near not when we were at our most lovable, not when we finally realized our desperate need for God's love. But as Paul writes elsewhere, and we read this morning, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Now, does seeing the love of God for you in the context in which it's set truly produce guilt in you? What do you think? I, I, I think we have to, if we're honest, admit, okay, yes, to a certain degree it does. When I think of 
my sins, when I think of what I've done in those years when I was gratifying the desires of my sinful nature, yeah, it does produce some guilt in me. I feel awful that a sinless, perfect Savior would have to die for me for those things that I did. Yes. But much more than that, much more, when I consider why he died for my sins, as well as when he died, when I was at my very worst, the greater overriding feeling at such a demonstration of love is gratitude for what he's done. That's the overwhelming feeling in me. It's gratitude. And I think that's absolutely the point Paul is giving here and calling us to remember who we were before Jesus saved us, to lead us to an increasing gratitude for the love of God toward us in saving, by saving us by sending Jesus. It's what would lead John Newton to write that hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Would lead Charles Wesley to write what we sang this morning. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Would lead Isaac Watts to write, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's no wonder that Paul writes there in verse 7 of our passage, it will take the coming ages to be shown all the incomparable riches of God's grace toward us in Jesus. Which means this call to remember is intended to produce gratitude both now as well as for all eternity. Okay, so that's how remembering leads us to gratitude. Last thing I want us to look at is how remembering leads us to humility. Remembering leads us to humility. And I wanted to look at this after covering how remembering leads us to gratitude because that gratitude that we experience in the practice of remembering who we were before Jesus saves us produces, or, or at least it should be increasingly producing, a radically different way of living for all of us. Now, every single person that Jesus has saved is called to a mission. We may have different giftings or callings individually, but the mission of God's people is one and the same. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus presents that mission as to make disciples. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus presents the mission as to be his witnesses. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul presents uh, the mission of God's people as to be his ambassadors, continuing Christ's work of reconciliation. So so that's that's the mission that everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus has. But as it relates to our passage today, I believe that how we go about fulfilling that mission is powerfully informed, is powerfully influenced by that radically different way of living produced by gratitude. It changes how we live out that mission. And while there's all kinds of different ways that that sense of gratitude from remembering transforms us, As it relates to carrying out our mission, I believe that one of the primary products of that transformation that Paul is talking about here in our passage is humility. He's saying it should, gratitude should produce humility both before God as well as before others that we're witnessing to. Now, I'll show you where I'm getting that and then we'll just talk about it for a minute. I see that primarily in verse 8 and 9. Look there with me. Paul writes, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, I could spend hours 
talking just about those two verses alone. There is a ton packed into just those two little verses. But just to summarize, to give us a a big, broad strokes of what Paul's getting at, what he just said is that basically our salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace to us. Our salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace, and it has nothing to do either with earning or deserving it. In fact, these same verses help to form the basis of the Protestant understanding of salvation during the Protestant Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. I think the end of verse 9 there, look, it makes it pretty clear that God's intent in asking us to remember this should produce humility in us. You see, he says there, He saved us, it is God's gift of grace, not of works, so that no one can boast. That's why he did it, so no one can boast. Maybe you'd want to stop right there and be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why, why would the Bible even say that? What's the, I mean, if our salvation is truly a gift of God's grace, how in the world could anyone boast about it? To which I'd want to reply, exactly. <laughs> Great question. And yet I'd also quickly want to follow up by saying, yeah, but somehow <laughs> we still always find a way to do it all the time. Somehow we find a way still to boast in it. Now, it would be easy here to pick at the, you know, the low-hanging fruit, uh, someone that you might have seen uh, that, that is, is just so clearly believes that he or she was an obvious choice for God's team, you know, that all of their good works, their pious actions, their Bible memory pins just put them at a different level, closer to God than everyone else, even other Christians. The, the Pharisee from Luke 18 with his Boasting, prideful prayer. God, I thank you that you have not made me like other men. That that just reeks of that kind of spiritual bravado. But just stop. But pause for a minute there and go beneath the surface of that. Go beneath the surface and recognize that what we can easily point to and judge in that Pharisee comes from the very same attitude and the very same place that can lead every single one of us at one time or another to base the status of our relationship with God on how well we're doing spiritually. God's pleased with me today. I'm doing well because I had my Bible reading time this morning. I I was too busy this morning. I I, I didn't get to reading my Bible, so I'm going to have a bad day. God's not pleased with me. He's not going to love me today. Don't, Don't you ever have thoughts like that? But don't you see, if our standing before God is based on our behavior, either your obedience to God's law or your disobedience, that's no longer salvation by grace alone. That's salvation by works. Not at all saying that God's indifferent to our behavior. He's not. But if it's based, if our standing before God is based on our obedience or disobedience, it's not salvation by grace anymore. So, along with calling us to remember who we were before God saved us, the Bible is also calling us to remember that our salvation is entirely a gift of grace and nothing to do of our own efforts. And why would the Bible want us to remember that? Again, not at all because God's some kind of insecure God trying to coerce our obedience by laying some kind of guilt trip on us, like, hey, don't remember all that stuff. Don't forget that stuff I did for you. You owe me now. That's not what God's doing. Don't forget, humility, the humility God means to inspire in us by remembering our salvation as a gift of grace is for the purpose of protecting us from trying to earn something that's already ours in Jesus. 
saying, don't, don't obey me to try to be loved by me. Obey me because you already are. Don't try to earn something that's already yours. So that's how remembering what creates humility in us before God. And it's out of that understanding that we see how remembering creates humility in us in our witness to others, which has direct relevance to what I said about the way this radical new way of living affects how we go about the mission God's given to us. For when we understand our salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace, not only is our boasting silenced before God, it's also silenced before others as well. And this is where what we started with, remembering who we were before Jesus saved us, ties directly into what we just covered. Salvation, a gift of grace alone by faith alone. Because, think about it. When you remember why and when Jesus saved you, and then add into that, remembering our salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace, nothing to do with your effort or earning, shouldn't that radically affect the way in which you carry out your mission to those who don't yet know Jesus? Shouldn't it radically affect the way you do that? I mean, is there any place remembering those things, remembering what we've contributed to our salvation, which is nothing? Is there any place for that kind of boasting prayer like that Pharisee in Luke 18? Is there any place for the kind of name-calling in verse 11 of our passage? We're the circumcised ones. We're the accepted ones of God, not like you uncircumcised Gentiles. Is there any place for that kind of behavior in light of our salvation and how we actually attained it. I love the way Paul states this same idea in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, saying, who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I promise you, trying to wear your salvation like a badge that you've earned creates only disdain or despair in those you're seeking to witness to. But humbly describing your salvation instead like a, like a heart transplant that you're just the grateful recipient of will be both intriguing, I think, and as well as compelling to those you're seeking to witness to. Maybe even actually finding them seeking out you to ask about your faith in God. Creating humility in us. This is also exactly why the Bible is calling us to remember. To remember is one of God's most powerful, motivating tools that He uses in the life of the believer to fuel the mission that He's given to each one of us. It's powerful because it strips away our pride and boasting in a moment. The second we remember who we were and what God saved us from, Strips away pride and boasting in a moment. It's also motivating because it allows us to witness with humility, humbly, with the hopeful expectation if God could save someone like me, he could save anybody. In fact, if you look at almost every testimony that Paul gives of the work of God in his life, you see again and again the fruit of this practice of remembering in his own life. A remembrance that not only gives him humility in his witness, but also gives him boldness where he freely shares those remembrances of who he was before Jesus saved him. A, a, a blasphemer, he says. I was a persecutor of Jesus and his church. The chief among sinners, he calls him. Sharing so freely that you almost want to pull Paul aside and be like, dude, just, just chill out a bit. Just, 
Don't share like that. What are people going to think? What are people going to think about Jesus? What are they going to think about the church if you keep sharing like that? It's going to make it look bad. Isn't that exactly why we're so often afraid of remembering who we were before Jesus saved us? Why we just want to forget that time on our lives? We want to put that part away and just move on? We think if we dwell on that stuff, or worse yet, if, if we share, if people find out about who we used to be, it's going to weaken people's perception of Jesus. It's going to weaken people's perception of Christianity. And yet, what Paul knew, and honestly what I've begun to see myself as well, as I've tried to just be more open and free about sharing who I was before Jesus saved me, and honestly, come on, even just being honest about the way I still fail to follow him perfectly. Just the opposite is true. Just the opposite is true. We, we think presenting this polished, you know, airbrushed, squeaky clean version of ourselves to the world is going to draw people to Jesus. Forgetting that it's only in the context of blindness that sight appears miraculous. It's only in the context of an inability to walk that picking up your mat and leaping for joy inspires hope. It's only in a graveyard, in the context of death, that life inspires faith. Or as one pastor said so well, people aren't drawn to faith in Jesus because you're awesome. They're drawn to faith in Jesus because he's so awesome, he could even save someone like you and like me. So, my call to us as a church family, beginning this new year of 2018, is remember regularly who you were before Jesus saved you and the grace that now saves you. It will lead you to life-transforming gratitude and compelling humility in your witness. And as you boldly share what it is that God saved you from, it will also lead others to that same source of grace and inspire hope for new life themselves.